This is Application Paranoia, Episode 5. Hello and welcome again to Application Paranoia, our podcast about application security, DevSecOps and AppScan. This is our twice-monthly parlay around technical insights, assorted facts and the latest news from HL AppScan. I'm Colin Bell, and with me on the panel I have my tried and true colleagues, Rob Cuddy and Chris Dewar. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss our recent supposition on continuous security, and we're also going to be talking to our HCL software CISO, Joseph Rubino. First and foremost, let me introduce our trusty panel. We have Rob. How are you, Rob? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, It's good to be back with you guys. Everything's very cool, so it's good to see you. Very good. And we also have Chris. Hi, Chris. Chris hey, was a bit late. On? I was That's a bit late awesome. today. Yes, <laughs> I made them wait for me. <laughs> it's okay, That's Chris. Good. It was worth the wait. <laughs> we know who to blame, though, Chris. So we'll, yes. we'll, we'll fix that up later. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have uh, have been looking around, but I thought I'd start off with a little fun fact I found. I, I and I don't know how I found this, but the the surrealist compliment generator. So so basically, this is just a random thing which comes up with I, I guess it's meant to be compliments so. tell me what does a surrealistic compliment sound like <laughs> well, well here's one I surmise that your basement is made of skin and has never depleted of nurses what the hell <laughs> <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> um... <laughs> okay your nose hairs scare me that's that's not a compliment. No, <laughs> no. It's but a, it is. It's it is very surreal. Yes. <laughs> Either that, or they're really bad pickup lines. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> what the? Well, 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 do you have something better? No. What do you have for us? <laughs> yeah. So this week, um, I wanted to share a little bit with you about what we do in New Hampshire. Something called peak bagging. Uh, For those of you hikers out there, peak bagging is climbing 4,000 footers. And in New Hampshire, we're lucky. We have everything here. We've got the beach. We've got mountains. We've got fishing. We've got everything. And peak bagging, you climb these mountains and you say you climbed them. That's that's it. That's what you do. (laughs) But we have 48 of them, 48 that are over 4,000 feet in New Hampshire alone. It's insane. But yeah, people uh, people like to hike here, it turns out. It is a similar thing in in Scotland. They they I think over a certain height they're called Munros, and there's like a Munro there's a Munro club where you 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 go up all the Munros in Scotland and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. So same well, ideas. Awesome. Apparently they like to hike in Scotland too. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Very much. So. I think Colorado has the same kind of thing. Only those are like what ten thousand, fourteen thousand foot peaks, and there's oh, a bunch so. of those. I know, but well, but they don't have ten thousand they... foot. They don't have 48 of them, so... They don't have 48 of them. Bang, bang, bang. As as you know, and I said a few weeks ago, I've been running every morning during Mm. this sort of COVID thing. And I've I've reached 76 runs in a row at this stage. But um, when I got to 68, I'd actually managed to... um, The the climb, the the climb on the runs that I'd done, it was the same height as Mount Everest. So it's taken me 68 runs to reach that sort of height which is... and you survived that's nice, nice. yeah <laughs> and i didn't need oxygen or a sherpa yeah. <laughs> so that or that's cold weather gear or that's pretty whatever cool. hikers use 
I have a friend yeah. of mine who is um, doing the same sort of thing where he's running across the state of New York virtually every day. So it kind of tracks <laughs> as if you were running from like Niagara Falls down and around like to, to New York City. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, well, so out here, uh, it's been it's really interesting, right? And in, in California, as you know, is a, a very eclectic state. It has stuff uh, going up and down all over. Uh, but I was fa uh, fascinated this week to find out that the city of Fallbrook, which is a little over an hour from where I am, uh, every year in April does a avocado festival. And of course, this year there was great sadness because they had to cancel due to all of the COVID concerns. But uh, if you like guacamole and uh, things like that, then you might want to visit the city of Fallbrook in uh, April 2021 and uh, check out their avocado festival that runs for several days there. And then the, uh, the other fun fact I thought was, was really interesting was um, back in 1969, on October 29th, uh, the very first internet connection done over ARPANET uh, occurred actually in California. And it was a transmission that was supposed to go from UCLA to Stanford. And it, the original transmission was supposed to be simply the word login, but we're all familiar with the internet crashing. And in this case, it only got past the words LO and then crashed. So... <laughs> Right out the gate, the very first transmission was having trouble. Um, but there's a plaque on the UCLA campus apparently commemorating the event uh, all the way back in 1969. So thought that was fascinating. The low event? <laughs> the low, yes, that was the low event of the year. <laughs> and, and, you, and you did know, Rob, that um, avocados can't be eaten by vegans. You did know that, did you? What? I, Why? I be, because not. because of the cruelty to the bees in the making of avocados. I'm serious. What? Are you serious? <laughs> okay. It's not vegan friendly. I, I, I oh, wow. I'm I, yeah. <laughs> See, that should have been our fun fact. <laughs> well, it is now, isn't it? There you go. Last week. Um, we did our webinar um, on continuous security, which is on Bright Talk. Um, we did it on June the 2nd. So if you go to Bright Talk and channel 17840, you should find our, our webinar. Um, and that, that, the whole purpose of that was to sort of represent what we are calling continuous security at a, at a much higher level. So I think we thought we'd do, Rob, is talk about each one of these in turn. So we, sure. you know, if you look at that, we have you know, we, we, we sort of split it up into three main segments, which was construct, intensify and, and, and assurance. But, but let's focus today on construct. Within construct, we have design and automate. Yep. Um, so in the, in the webinar, you, Rob, kicked off and you talked a little bit about the, the design phase. So obviously a much more condensed version here, but just a, a little bit of snippets on, on what we, we were talking about in relation to that. Yeah, yeah. And I think the biggest things in there were about getting security concepts um, involved very early in the planning stages. So when we talk about design, we're talking about thinking about security from the outset. So are you doing, you know, use cases and hill stories and epics and things like that that involve security? And tracing that all the way through and then are you able to prioritize things like your backlog where security issues are found so if something's found in production or late in a qa stage and that works its way back into the backlog are those things getting processed and can you 
appropriately sort of measure that against the other things that you're trying to build. So we talked a lot about that. And then we talked about the idea of, of automation, but really not just being able to automate for the sake of going faster, but really being able to do things that impact the pipeline in a positive way, sort of knowing where the bottlenecks are, being able to eliminate those kinds of things. So it's much more than just, you know, adding security testing somewhere in your pipeline. It's really knowing why you're doing it and, and getting some bang for the buck out of that. So, um, you know, it really gets into that whole idea of building it in versus bolting it on that we talk about so much. And Chris, from your perspective, you've talked a lot about, obviously, the automate piece. And I know it's very passionate to you, the, that part of the, the sort of process. Have you got any sort of things you want to add here to sort of entice people to maybe go and have a look at that webinar? Yeah, I think it's important. Automation is, is easy to set up. It's easy to pump a lot of stuff through it, but that's not really the only thing that automation is all about. You also should consider what to do with the stuff that comes out of automation. And if you can automate the triage, and there's a variety of strategies to do that, it's kind of a big deal. It's not just producing the issues. It's not just finding the stuff that you need to work on. It's actually working on the stuff. Mm. And automation can help you save people time. And ultimately, that's where the money is, time. You can buy back time with automation. And buying time is kind of a big deal because it's the one thing you have a finite, finite amount of in any endeavor that you undertake. For me, it was really just with the automate, it's, it's you know, it's, it needs to happen for a reason. It's not just press button. And when, you know, that's, that's the big key thing for me is having worked with lots of customers who just do automation and think they're doing application security. So, so the whole, you know, we'll go into this more, I guess, in our next sessions where we talk about the other parts of this, but it's just making it clear that just because you do automation, you're not, you're not necessarily at the end of your journey, you're probably just at the beginning. You just started. Yeah. If it doesn't help you get better security posture, why in the holy heck are you doing it? Yeah, exactly. That. So we have a few things in AppScan News and we we have to slap ourselves on the wrist as well, Chris, because we got in trouble because we, we announced things that hadn't happened yet in our last podcast. But, we won't, but the time this one goes out, it'll all be true, you know, so who cares? <laughs> it, it was prophetic. Exactly. Yeah, we're, we're, we're future, future state, you know, it's like, so. but we have had some releases this time. So we, this is going to be a plugin journey. So we, we've got the Azure plugin update. So this is our, our plugin for Azure, which is part of the ASOC or AppScan on cloud. And there's there's a few things in that, Chris. Anything that in particular that we should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of quality of life features like highlighting and making sure that you can't add a bad scan name and all that. But really, the one to, to call out to folks is the fact that you can now set up the scan depth that you want to use. So simple, balanced, deep, or thorough is the options are, are the options that we offer. But really what this means is that you can properly gate the different phases of your automation. You typically wouldn't run a thorough automation scan on every single build all the time. Mm -hmm. You want to get to the answer quickly. The whole point is automation helps you get there faster, whatever there is. And this gives you a lot more control over how long the scan is going to take so that you can get to some of those quick answers faster. Um, and the fun part about simple versus balanced versus deep versus thorough is approximately 75 to 80% of your findings that you would normally get 
in Thorough will be found in Balanced or Simple. We will find them. Most of the stuff is surfacey stuff. It's easy. It's set attribute from a parameter, and that's usually a one-liner. It takes no time at all for a data flow map to figure out that that's a finding. So you can take advantage of these faster methods and still find good value using them. And you should be using simple or balanced or ideally simple period in your nightly build so that if some someone for whatever reason added something they shouldn't have, you have that baseline from what it was, you know what the new one is, you should be going to fix that right away. Because as a developer, you know, we write code an hour later, yeah, it's fresh in our mind. A week later, well, it's a little bit fuzzy. A month later, we look at it and wonder, who wrote this? <laughs> and it was you. <laughs> so really hitting that, that vulnerability where it is a vulnerability, time is everything. And when we talk about time, we're talking about closest time to when you wrote it. And this will help you get there. You want to get there fast and you want to get the information in front of them as fast as possible. And this is a way for you to be able to do that, which we're pretty excited about. The other plugin um, update is the Jenkins update. So so this is obviously also for ASOC. I, and um, so this we're now at version 1.0.3. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's, there's quality of life improvements, defect improvements, just like anything else. But the, the big one here is um, it's better reporting in Jenkins for failed or suspended enterprise scans. So if you oh, cool. are using DAST in, a, in an automation environment, this fits you a lot better now than it did before. Um, so it's something to, to keep in mind. It's not just SAST you can automate. You can automate DAS scans, and you should be automating yeah. DAS scans. And we make it possible for you to do that with, with our plugins. Yeah, and this plugin, this plugin serves both, which is great. Right. So it's not like a different Jenkins plugin for each one of these. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty slick what, what they put together here. Uh, it's pretty slick. Yeah. What's next? AppScan Go update. So the, might need to explain AppScan Go a little bit here for, for some people, but... and. You know, and then maybe talk about what's been updated and that a little bit. Right. Yeah. And AppScan Go for us, <clears throat> take a little bit of a step back and talk how about SAST and how hard it is to configure SAS scans so that we make sure we have all the right dependencies. We make sure we have all the user code that we want to analyze, your exclusions that you don't want to scan, like your unit tests, etc. That sort of stuff is really hard to do just with a text file. So AppScan Go gives you a graphical user interface that's a lot easier to interact with. You don't necessarily need to be a true expert in compiling languages and all that nonsense. It helps you through the process. If you're missing a dependency, it'll let you know. If you have problems with or potential problems with your scan, it'll let you know before you even get to that point. So you can have it configured. You can exclude easily. You can include easily. All that nonsense can actually go on through a GUI, which a lot of us are familiar with using um, because, you know, phones. <laughs> but really, um, for us, the challenge was being able to represent proper and appropriate progress while you're generating the IR gen. Um, and now we can do that. It's, it's shockingly hard to plug into that process because you don't know how big that map's going to get as you're building it. You just have an idea. Uh, yeah. But now we have the ability to expose that to folks. So that's really nice. And, uh, you know, quality of life improvements, just like every release. Uh, that go yeah. in. So certainly we recommend and we highly recommend you get updates for these these plugins and AppScan Go as they come out because it, it's going to make your life better. Yeah, and it, the, the, I think the good thing with having 
this in the podcast is that at least we can announce these because it's not, not obvious that these changes happen to some people in some cases. You know, so. Yeah, absolutely. Right. right. And there, there are little things, though, that make a really big difference. Um, you know, and the thing I, that caught my attention, Chris, when you were talking through these was you're going back to kind of the Azure plugin and, and this notation of having things in context, right? Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I come from that whole software development world where um, it wasn't that long ago that when you made a change to something, you didn't get feedback on it for days. So it's not like, you know, you would check something into an integration build somewhere and then sit around for two or three days waiting to see what happened in production. You're going to continue to move on and make changes. And so if you get something back, days later and and now you sort of have to do that mental shift of what was i doing and what was the environment like and things have sort of moved on it's really hard so your comment about getting this as close to the build and getting this as close to you know what's going on um those are the things that make huge impact in being able to deal with stuff quickly and and easily so these are these are big deals yeah oh yeah developers are notorious uh notoriously forgetful bunch Yes. Well, and, and you we know, know we know just in front of us, and then we forget about it, move on to the next thing. There's right. just not enough room in the old bean to remember everything. There yeah. just isn't. Well, and that's because phones. Because phones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the the last update is um, there's uh, as as always we have an ASOC update in between our podcasts. The, the the one recently looks like a much smaller one, although it does sound like. Um, it might be a good feature that's within that, at least. Yeah, yeah you, can, uh, you can generate or create CSV format reports, which is useful if you want to be able to put this information into a different repository of record for whatever reason, or you want to do some work. Because no one wants to do that. Do yeah, they? no one wants to do that, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to do that. <laughs> we all no. just want to keep it here and nowhere else. Yeah. <laughs> but it's useful. It's beneficial. You can edit notes in there. You can do what you need to do. And a lot of a lot of companies like to use that system of record where they have a hard copy of a point mm -hmm. in time where they can make notes or notations and they can have something they can hand right over to somebody else for whatever reason. Yes. Uh, so we have that ability now. So it's nice. Yeah. Also makes it easier to trim and put into pivot tables and exactly. all other kinds of stuff like that. So yeah. yeah very stuff cool. In Excel or, well, we're not going to name brands here. There's stuff that a spreadsheet can do that you can't normally do in other places. And it's, it's beneficial to have it in this format to do those things. Excellent. Just to finish this segment, we have to do our call out for AppScan Tuesdays. Um, I think we're going to be on there soon. We, yes, we've been yeah, invited to be, be a, a part of AppScan Tuesdays. That's right. That's right. Yeah, so everybody gets to see what we look like. It's the extended anniversary <laughs> version. <laughs> AppScan Tuesdays happens at noon Eastern. Um, if, you, if you're struggling to find it, the, the, probably the best way is to go to YouTube and type in this is AppScan and you'll you'll find it. So I believe this week, um, Sean, um, Sean used to be part of the services team and is now um, work, one of our sellers. He's he's going to talk about scanning RESTful services and doing incremental in AppScan Enterprise. So, so that could be very interesting. Um, and last week, we um, Peter Lee was on, if you missed Peter. So, so. Yep. Peter did a great job. Yep. And for our interview this week, we're very excited to introduce our Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer, Joe Rubino. Hi, Joe, and welcome to Application Paranoia. 
Thank you. So HCL software is, is very new. And we really, really curious to just get a start to get an idea of the vision that you might have around our products and our systems. And we know that you're fairly new to HCL software as well. So, so what sort of take do you have on that in your, your first few months with, with the company? It's been a great first few months and I really enjoy the, the diversity of the product suite that we have. But the way that I look at it is really how do we build upon um, key principles that we've established within the HCL software executive team. Obviously for me, it's that trust and security in everything we do, that strategic pillar of focus. So in the past, before coming to HCL software, I've worked with very strong organizations as it relates to security culture, identification, focus on continuous improvement. And so I want to bring that uh, focus to the existing portfolio of products here and just build upon what is already there and then to create some focus in some key areas. So I think that integration of that security culture is going to be a key piece of that. And we could do that in a number of different ways. Um, but I think ultimately it's really about, are we as security professionals effectively aligned to um, the business and are we accomplishing what is expected? Uh, of us, not only from our own internal customers, but our uh, customer base uh, on a broader scale. Excellent. So, Joe, you mentioned having trusted security in everything that we do. So, I'm curious, how does that fit in to kind of what's happening with our application development life cycles, kind of the IT team? How do you think we can build that more in? Yeah. So. I think that integration of that security culture that I talked about, it's really about how are we building or nurturing a team of security professionals that can really support the needs of our organization and our customer base. And by building security professionals, I just don't mean people within my organization. I think we need to expand that um, identification of what a security professional is. And to me, um, in today's uh, corporate world, we all have to kind of assume that additional responsibility of security professional, of data privacy professional, of customer support professional. And the further that we can kind of push ourselves to, to embrace that new normal, uh, those expectations, those responsibilities associated with that, I think further along will be. I think part of that is really identifying uh, within the security regime specifically, what is a security professional? And I know that whether it's in the development community, in the security community, in the business community, there are a couple key themes that kind of come across, and we have them obviously, as I mentioned, within the security community as well, about what a security professional is. And I think it's our job, especially within HCL software, to be leaders as, as to how we define that. And so for me, technical skills are a prerequisite, of course, and I think everyone would, would agree with that. But I don't think that's satisfactory. I think we need to kind of move beyond that and get into, do we have alignment with the organization? Do we have effective emotional intelligence? Do we have effective collaboration skills? Do we have effective business skills? Are we um, exemplifying leadership attributes um, at every level of the organization? Um, are we doing the right thing for the right reason? And avoiding the kind of checklist mentality perspective of um, what a lot of people think security professionals are. Are we getting away from the uh, gotcha mentality and moving forward to, with the let's partner to develop an innovative solution? 
So I think the days of, at least in the organizations that I've worked in, in HCL software, the days of, well, I'm a, a great technical security professional, so I can get away with significant gaps in these other areas. For me, that's just not acceptable. And I think we need to continue to push. Um, if we're going to collectively tackle some of these incredible challenges that we're up against, we need to do it with a, with a more fulsome view and a more holistic approach as to how we tackle those. Yeah, I think that's a great thing because when people talk about the whole DevSecOps movement piece, so much of it has seemed to be how do we bring people more uh, into security? And it's been a hard road for a lot of people because they don't necessarily have that perspective. So what do you think we can do to make it a little bit easier to kind of communicate those security needs back into traditional development roles where they thought more about functionality and performance and things like that instead of security. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we need to kind of further um, embrace the hybrid model of employee and especially security employee. I think from the organizations that I've served in, what, what they've done a great job in um, early on is that multidisciplinary approach and that, yes, you may be good at X, Y, and Z, but we all have, all have to get through A through X as well. So <laughs> buckle up. And and part of that is kind of how, how are we identifying people across the organization with the necessary curiosity, with the necessary empathy for their colleagues and for change, with the necessary grit and resilience, um, especially within security. Work is never done. So if you have this aspect that if I get through this checklist within security or if I accomplish these key initiatives that I'm somehow done, that just doesn't bode well for a comprehensive security professional that we need. I think the further that we can blur those lines between, um, in this instance, um, a developer and a security professional, perhaps maybe we have some integrated training platforms, right? Um, which I think are important. Um, I think that perhaps we have 90 day, 180 day rotational programs between the security community and the development community with the appropriate skills, of course, um, to be able to contribute to those. I think that really what leads into that is in order to make that successful, in order for developers to want to be able to think about security and in order for security to want to really think about development and continuing to refine their develop development skills and to understand it better so that they can support it from a security perspective, I think we got to have to break down these silos of, well, we do this and this is what we do and they do this and this is what they do. Kind of destroy those old reputational challenges. Um, for security, I can speak up. I think it's time to drop that information security ego across the board. I think it's time to like lean in on value to the business, on risk reduction, rigorous threat analysis, and lean away from that because I said so, or a fear-based approach, or this will happen if you don't do it. And so I think that as we're beginning to break down those barriers, then you can really have some substantive conversations about, hey, well, now that I understand what you do more, I think I'd like to pursue this, maybe for a short time, maybe for a long time. But either way, um, just that communication, just that um, collaboration, I think will yield some significant short-term and long-term results. And we've seen success stories beyond just the application security arena from development to security, from security to development. We've seen it in IT operations coming over to support threat response and incident response, network operations. 
We've seen it on um, program management and project management, supporting some of our compliance operations, sales support activities, and vice versa. So, those, and the types of professionals that I was talking about before are those that kind of across the board, regardless of security discipline, have that desire to add value to the organization, desire to speak um, kind of truth to power to our customers, and not just have some standard line of this is how we do it, but rather be proud of the work that we're doing. Um, and when we make mistakes, to own up to those mistakes and say, yeah, we, we made these mistakes and these are the steps that we're going to take to make it right. And so those kinds of characteristics, I think they, um, for me, I, I uh, value those just as much, if not more so, than baseline and frankly expected technical skills to do your job. That's an, an interesting take. <clears throat> where we're taking security or secure coding, which is the world we live in, mm -hmm. um, and changing it from a four-letter word to yeah. how we for our life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I think part of that is um, we need to think about expanding the definition of product security altogether, right? And I'm saying that specifically, again, uh, within the security community. Oftentimes, assuming that old style mentality of, well, we'll do dynamic scanning, we'll do static scanning, maybe we'll do some interactive scanning, and later on we'll do a pen test potentially. Um, there's much more to comprehensive product security to that, as you know, um, that we need to continue to educate, to reinforce, to support. We can eliminate a lot of findings, uh, reactive findings from a penetration test if we did effective threat modeling early on. If we did kind of effective um, risk analysis um, early on in the process um, and continue with those other steps, but still having that effective um, communication across the different disciplines of activity, I think will just, again, yield some um, faster, better, more efficient and uh, more value added results to the overall process. So Joe, I IoT is a, is a hot topic at the moment. Um, what specific threats do do you see around IoT to organizations and, and maybe even better, what opportunities do you think it might present for HL software? I, I think it's a great opportunity to expand upon some of the issues that I talked about before in terms of how do we adjust our aperture to address with this new threat profile, right? So the IoT um, threats are pervasive, expansive, broad in every sense of the way. Are we adjusting our aperture so that we are looking at um, new exploitation methods and considering new remediation activities, security activities to prevent, detect, or uh, respond to those issues? Or are we applying old methodologies to these new challenges and kind of thinking behind the curve? So I think that I have a great deal of confidence in the security community, um, partnering with the other communities of business that I mentioned before to deal with these new use cases as they come up, what seems like daily or hourly uh, for some specific IoT use cases. Um, I don't have major concerns about that, but what I do have concerns with is how are we dealing with them? Are we dealing with them with a forward lean of evaluating our own models of analysis of have we effectively exploited this threat in our own minds? Um, if we were to exploit it, how would we do it? Um, and kind of applying, applying that intelligence, counterintelligence model to threat analysis in a way that's continually iterative, 
and builds upon itself instead of just, well, this is the threat model assessment that we use. So new IoT devices can kind of come into this model and here's our output. No, we need to break that up and we need to continually um, revisit that to improve it um, before to stay on pace uh, with what's coming at us. So Joe, I'm curious, what are some of the key metrics, some of the measures that you're using to kind of see whether we're successful there? The things that you kind of pay attention to, maybe help you sleep a little easier at night, you know, the things that you really care about. Right. So obviously, like any chief information security officer, the core metrics of, you know, coverage area and scope, vulnerability identification by source, types of vulnerabilities identified, um, what what's new, what's coming up new over time um, versus the same trending that we've seen historically. And then are we responding effectively to that um, false positive and false negative uh, rates? Um, because ultimately, you know, I'm responsible for maintaining that relationship within our developer community. And so if we are deploying tool sets or other capabilities, which is harming our relationship, our credibility within our own developer community, then obviously that's going to that's going to have long term ramifications. So that's something that we track very closely. But I also think a key metric for me is, you know, what are we hearing from the development teams, right? Rather than are the development teams actually taking action based on the framework or policy structure that we've given them? Are we hearing some concerns from them about security vulnerabilities, about uh, security generally within the SDLC and how it's negatively impacting their workflows and what we can do to kind of come up with an innovative solution to, to help ease that burden? How do we reduce that friction? So that kind of, I don't want it to be a, a one-way communication flow, but we need to, as security professionals, um, encourage the development community to, hey, look, we're all on the same team here. How do we incorporate your feedback into um, our information flow so that we can give structure, guidance, policy, framework to, to support um, the type of real-world use cases um, within your particular environment? So, Joe, we have a lot of people that I think are coming out of college that are interested in cyber, but this is a really technical space. It requires some expertise, and those are things that are hard to get apart from experience. And so how do we do a better job of providing entry-level opportunities, places for people that intersect with security? I'm just kind of curious, as a CISO, what are some of your thoughts on how we can help bridge that gap that's coming uh, and enable people to move a little easier into these kind of career paths. Sure. So a um, couple things. First of all, yeah, it's a challenge. It's a daunting challenge, but it's for me, it's exciting because the way in which we evaluate talent might be different than um, a lot of the other um, uh, security communities. And so I think that we can really kind of pierce into uh, what is that available population and really pick out um, some key attributes that are not only going to uh, fit within our business, but be a good fit to the broader security community. And I think that as leaders, we're ultimately responsible for building that out, not just within our own teams, but what's acceptable within our community as security professionals. And as I mentioned before, those issues of curiosity, those issues of, of endurance, of grit, of kind of fate tackling an issue head on. And notice that I didn't just reference um, specific um, technical skills, because frankly, 
those that over-focus on technical skills now, it may be a short-term solution, but in five years, um, those technical skills are going to be outdated. So how do we um, how do we kind of build the engine so that we're supporting that ability to grasp um, whatever concept may be prevalent at the time and then translate that into value? I think um, it really comes down to another reason why I'm excited about this is because it comes there's a lot uh, um, of information at the disposal of the um, applicant or um, the individual that wants to enter the community. Look at the OWASP community. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an incredible body of individuals that contribute all around the world um, and really do so out of wanting to make the community better. And it's not just the security community, but the, the entire development community as well. Um, and I've seen great partnership and I've seen um, individuals from all across the spectrum of security be welcomed into that platform, um, whether it be risk and compliance professionals, data privacy professionals, network security professionals, incident response um, professionals, application security leads and other professionals within the application security space. Um, it has really uh, been for me a great avenue of exposure to the quality of talent that's there. Um, those meetings are um, outstanding ways to just actually put a name with a face um, beyond just a bunch of certifications and a, and a bunch of um, uh, uh, likely really good experience on a resume, right? So to be able to say like, how are you, um, what are you doing in your own free time to kind of brush up on your skills? What are you doing uh, nights and weekends uh, is kind of expected terrain for you to kind of take that next step. How are you moonlighting, um, maybe not as a revenue generator, but in terms of investing into your own skill set based on the uh, open source information that's available to you uh, within the community? Who are you talking to and how are you building those networks of people that you can tap into? And not just tap into as a one way, give me, give me, give me, but here are some ideas that I have. Or so, these are some of the challenges that I face. Um, I think that that information for us um, is also valuable. So to kind of, again, getting back to those um, fundamental skills of, am I able to identify those opportunities for myself? Do I have the grit and determination to see them through? And do I have the communication and collaboration skills to actually make it a reality and just turn this knowledge into something that's actually feasible for the uh, an individual entity to take a chance on them uh, or for the individuals themselves? Yeah, that's outstanding. OWASP is a great organization, lots of great places to go out there. So, yeah, and that's just as you as you mentioned, Rob. That's just one. I mean, there's right. there's a ton of. Or, I'm just highlighting that because of our um, local chapters here. I've been really impressed uh, with in the DC region, especially. But there are just so many different uh, organizations that you can tap into, mm -hmm. and and frankly, those within the security community that you want to be associated with, that you want to learn from, that you want to take that guidance from, they're always happy to talk and learn. I mean, I'm learning every single day. And I haven't had one person over the course of my career from someone that actually sought out guidance because I'm like, you know, this is the type of behavior that I want to model. This is the type of security professional that I want to be. Or this is someone that they seem to embody the kind of learning principles that I think I'd find most valuable. Not once have I ha ever had them said, sorry, I don't have the time or uh, good luck finding that information. It's rather <laughs> like, you know, hey, here, here's here's what I can share. Um, and I think there's all of us are, are looking forward to, to doing that for the next generation. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So from a developer's perspective, um, we're kind of far down the flagpole from, from where you sit on as, a, as a CISO. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that you wish we were doing but aren't currently actually doing? <laughs> you mentioned that you're far down the flagpole, but I think that kind of flagpole should be reversed, right? And I think part of that is I get back to that, that humility that I think security professionals need to have, myself included. I'm not a revenue driver. No security professional is a revenue driver for an organization, right? Uh, whereas the development community actually is. And so if we're understanding that where we fit within the organization and being proud of that support um, that we're able to provide to actually develop an end-to-end -end value added product, I think that that would kind of help um, with that relationship. I think that communication, I would love to hear more from the development community. I think oftentimes maybe they think that, oh, well, as long as we just follow this, security's fine, they don't need to hear from us. No, security, we're only as good as the information that we know at the time that we can develop countermeasures against, right? And so who is closer to that information than the development community within a software um, lifecycle? So if we could just enhance that communication, um, and I'm open to suggestions, whether it's, you know... <laughs> Um, information flow so that we can tap into these innovative dynamic brains and say like how do we learn more how do we develop better protection mechanisms if you were going to exploit this code what would you do and so now let's build upon uh, some of that uh, from a security and preventative or uh, a protective perspective to make this as robust as we can uh, together so I think if anything it would just be uh, finding ways to enhance that communication and collaboration uh, with the development and security communities. That's curious. Uh, most CISOs that I've talked to or had the opportunity to talk to say pretty much the same thing. <laughs> they just wish they knew more from those of us on the front line. So I think those of us who are on the front line, we really need to be not afraid to say things. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And just to put it on a really different level, so at the current climate, um, you know, with COVID and things like that, and because we have a very diverse group of teams, what are some of the challenges that you've seen and maybe what are some of the things maybe that have been put in place that you've been aware of that have really helped? Yeah. Luckily for us, the HCL software mobility strategy was already pretty robust and pretty strong. And we, as you know, operate in a, in a global environment. So we have teams all over the world. And so our communication methods were strong, our development practices, regardless of where you are in the world, were pretty strong. I think that engagement and collaboration, it's not just, it's, it's just not the same over Zoom. And even if, Zoom, uh, even if uh, remote meetings are gonna be a, a portion of your day-to-day -day world, it's still, you have those touch points periodically to kind of come back every month and see someone at a meeting or have a discussion face-to-face. Um, -face. Um, and I think that that is something that all organizations are dealing with right now. But um, ultimately, in terms of our ability to maintain that uh, uh, our ongoing operations, I haven't seen a significant issue. If anything, I've seen a focus on some of those areas that lose focus at times, not in crisis. I think now organizations are thinking, if they haven't already, um, they're thinking about business continuity. They're thinking about continuity of operations planning. They're thinking about their own mobility strategies if they hadn't done so appropriately in the past. 
Um, so I think um, from a security perspective, um, while we are fortunate within HCL software to have robust processes and policies and frameworks to support this new normal, it's always an area to um, identify issues that we may be having, minor or major, and start to take corrective action against them. Well, look, thank you very much, Joe. Really, really appreciate you joining us. Sure. Uh, you know, this has been very insightful. Cool. Thank you. So thanks again for listening to Application Paranoia with Chris, Rob, and myself. Special thanks to Joe for his insights. If you like our show and want to ask some questions, probably the best way is through the AppScan Twitter page or, or through our AppScan LinkedIn. So AppScan Twitter page is um, the, the handle there is AppScan HCL. So please submit your comments and make sure you add hashtag application paranoia. So thanks, Rob. Yeah, it was awesome to be with you guys. And thank you, Chris. Ah, every time is a, is a fun time. <laughs>